This edition of the Bio Report is brought to you by the California Technology Council, providing discounts on products and services essential to every startup. For more information, visit californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The California legislature earlier this month passed a bill that would allow physicians to aid terminally ill patients who wanted to end their lives. California would become the fifth state to enact such legislation. We spoke to David Grube, National Medical Director of Compassion and Choices, a nonprofit working to expand end-of-life options, about the legislation, how attitudes among the public and physicians have changed, and what we've learned since Oregon passed the first such law. 17 years ago. David, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for asking me. I'm happy to to, uh, to talk with you. The California legislature has passed a bill that would allow terminally ill people to uh, obtain prescription drugs to end their own lives. What exactly would the law do? Well, the law is very similar to Oregon law and uh I'm a retired Oregon physician, um, and I think that California was modeled almost exactly after the Oregon law. The Oregon statute, which was uh, uh, instituted in 1997, states that um, a resident of the state uh, who is 18 years or older and uh, mentally capable and not under coercion uh, can ask uh, a physician for a prescription for life-ending medication. Um, if they have a terminal diagnosis, uh, which means that they would have less than six months to live. And at this point, is there any sense if uh, the governor, Jerry Brown, will sign the bill? You know, I don't know about that. He has the option to sign it or to veto it or to ignore it, which I believe in California means it would uh, would um, become law. So I do not know what the governor's intentions are. Uh, to my knowledge, he has not stated uh, his opinion yet. Well, while California would become the fifth state to pass such legislation to aid people in dying, this is still an act that doctors who help terminally ill patients in, in many states can face serious criminal penalties. What is the state of the law throughout the country, and are doctors prosecuted for, for doing this? I don't know every state. Um, uh, you're, you are correct that there now are five states uh, which this is legal. You know, I know that, that that on rare occasions doctors are prosecuted for uh, for this, um, but it's very rare, to my knowledge, uh, quite unusual and uncommon. Um, and because you know, uh, people who are dying um, are seeking help from the doctor, and almost always doctors try to do the best they can to alleviate a person's suffering. There is a condition called double effect, which means that if a a physician prescribes a medication, uh, a strong medication to help a patient with pain and suffering. Uh, sometimes the sec- a secondary effect is that um, the patient 
uh, you know, can take the medication um, and uh, it can alleviate their suffering, but they also could stop breathing. But it's not the intention of the doctor in in other states uh, to do to do that. Well, Brittany Maynard, the 29 year old California woman who was terminally ill and took her own life, became the face of the death with dignity movement. She had to relocate to Oregon to avail herself of the law. What impact do you think she's had on efforts in in California and elsewhere? And to what extent has she put a face on this issue? Oh, it's uh, immeasurable. I think that without a doubt that. Um, her story, which was so compelling, um, has has really totally changed the the the, uh, the situation. Uh, she was a very uh, intelligent woman, uh, a young woman, which is unusual uh, because of her terminal diagnosis being so young. Uh, it, it, she was a very attractive woman, um, and, but most importantly, she was an articulate person. And so her story, uh, which went viral fairly quickly. Uh, in the internet and social media areas, really um, brought this conversation out into the open, and has made all the difference in the world uh, in the in the entire United States uh, for people to talk about end of life uh, options. Well, you mentioned the California law being modeled on Oregon's, which passed 17 years ago. What have we learned about people's use of that law since it was first passed? Well, it's very interesting because. Uh, uh, the there have been quite a number of unintended consequences and unexpected consequences. There was uh, a number, a number. There were, were a number of concerns which uh, people raised, uh, uh, who were not only in opposition to the Oregon statute, but also wondering what might occur. And uh, very interestingly, over the last 17 years, and we have quite a bit of data now, um, none of the uh, arguments opposed to aid and dying have have come to fruition, and the unintended and unexpected consequences are such things as um, uh, the uh, law is rarely used in Oregon, uh, only 100 times last year out of 34,000 deaths. Uh, Palliative care now in Oregon um, has risen to the top quartile of all um, hospice and palliative care programs in the nation, and abuse of hospice and palliative care programs Oregon is now in the, amongst the lowest in the nation, which have actually been uh, correlated with uh, the aid in dying or the death with dignity law. Furthermore, there has been no erosion of um, the law. There's been no change in the law. There's been no um, request to extend the law to other situations. So there have been quite a number of uh, effects that were not expected um, in the last 18 years. And one of the things I've seen that kind of surprised me is that about one-third of the people who obtain lethal doses of drugs under the law don't actually use them. Is, is that surprising? Well, it's no longer surprising. I think it was surprising initially. However, that statistic has not changed over the last 17 years. It's almost exactly that number every year. So really what it's saying is that people who are at the end of life um, want some control, want to know that they can choose um, um, something when they have their, their diseases about to cause their death. Um, and for many reasons, many of those reasons and others, um, yes, one-third of patients do not take the medication. Well, as we've seen this law in practice and, and had experience with it, and we've, we've seen people like Brittany Murphy come forward, how has the public's attitude changed? 
Well, if you look at polling uh, over not only uh, uh, in California, but all over the entire nation, the public attitude has changed dramatically. Um, whereas just a few years ago, um, probably less than half of the people who were polled were in support of aid in dying. And now uh, fully 70% and more over all kind of uh, uh, spectrums uh, and demographics uh, support aid in dying as well as the majority of physicians now who, just a few years ago, a minority of physicians supported aid in dying. Now, a majority of physicians in the United States support aid in dying on well, polls that were done uh, last December. Why do you think there's been that change in physician attitudes? I think it's multifactorial. Uh, doctors are recognizing uh, that we cannot, uh, in every case, in every single case, alleviate uh, suffering. Um, we're hopefully another reason is that we're listening to what patients want and not deciding for them what we think that they should have. Um, I think that we're seeing that um, aid in dying is not increasing uh, the number of people who are dying. It's just decrease, decreasing the number of people who are suffering. Um, and uh, our experience has shown that, um, and we hear from our peers that uh, on these in these cases, uh, which when lethal prescriptions are prescribed, um, actually uh, there is uh, a much less suffering. And I think all in all, that's what doctors really want is uh, when we cannot cure, we certainly want to um, alleviate suffering. I know terminology is a sensitive matter with regard to this issue. What terms do you use and what terms don't you use and why? And do you see someone with a terminal illness as doing something fundamentally than committing suicide when they decide to end their life because of that terminal illness? How do you discuss the issue? Thank you for asking that question because it's a very, very important word, I think, important concept. I think words are kind of like scalpels. You can use them uh, to, to, in a therapeutic way to, um, to help someone with their suffering, or you can use them in a, a cruel way uh, to uh, increase um, family suffering, etc. In Oregon, by statute, if you read the law, uh, ORS 127-822, um, it states that uh, aid in dying is not and shall not be regarded as suicide. So we don't use the term. Suicide is uh, always uh, involved in someone with a mental illness. They have major depressive disorder. They might have a um, addictive personality trait, um, schizophrenia, something. Uh, aid and dying patients uh, do not have a mental diagnosis. They are dying. Um, they want to live. Suicidal patients don't want to live. And they oftentimes make a, a, a choice that's violent and alone and sort of... Um, Impulsive. Aid and dying patients don't do that. Their choice is not impulsive. They've thought about their option for a long time. It's almost always in, in the context of being with a family. It's not violent. But I think the most telling of all is the, is the subsequent uh, reaction of everyone. In an aid and dying patient, uh, there is not uh, guilt. There is not um, the family discord and, and strife. There's not the questioning or wondering what more could we have done. Whereas in suicide, um, that's certainly the case. Everybody wishes that they had looked out for the signs and symptoms of the person who took their life. Um, another way to say this that is that suicide um, 
is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Suicidal patients, uh, if we could help them with their depression or whatever it is, um, they can be better. Eight and dying patients uh, are not going to be better. They are about to die. And I, I noticed, on you know, the death certificates I've seen, the, the cause of death is attributed to the disease rather than to the drugs. Yes, that's actually a very important point. A death certificate has two uh, parts to it. One is a legal part that's kind of uh, to establish the death so that the estate can be managed, etc. And the other part is the medical part, which has to do with epidemiology and manner of death. So statistics are kept very closely on aid and dying patients, um, but the, the death is really um, uh, the disease, for example, lung cancer or brain cancer. Another way to look at this is uh, if you have someone with brain cancer in the hospital on a respirator and you turn off the respirator, that is the moment of their death. And one way to write it on the death certificate would be that the person died of stopping breathing because the respirator was turned off in the ICU. We never put that on a death certificate. On the death certificate, we put brain tumor or lung cancer. So similarly, uh, in aid and dying, the manner of death is really the disease that's caused the death. The timing of the death is changed, but not the manner of the death. I, I know there's still a fair bit of controversy and opposition surrounding legislation. I'm, I'm wondering if there's something fundamental in the way opponents view aid and dying legislation, or is, is there common ground to be found? Well. Um, I hope that ultimately there would be common ground to be found um, because I think both uh, opponents of aid in dying and proponents of aid in dying believe in compassion. We believe in caring. We want to prevent suffering. And, and ultimately, that's what you know everybody is wanting for the patient. I think the main difference right now is that um, the patient uh, is is not being heard sometimes, and, and opponents um, want to put their beliefs up, uh, uh, against aid and dying on the, the person who uh, may not believe what they do. So personal beliefs, I think, are, are what is really the, the, the problem in the two areas. Individually, um, personal beliefs are, are very important, and that's um, the way that the California law has been structured is that the individual is the one who makes the determination. It isn't the doctor. It's not the insurance company. It's the individual. So we should listen to the individual. Um, they are autonomous. And we should allow the individual to, to make choices uh, to alleviate suffering that uh, uh, you know, are legal and appropriate um, and not put our personal beliefs upon them. I think Americans have been uncomfortable with discussions of death at our, at our own peril. Uh, think back to the debates around the Affordable Care Act that turned end-of-life counseling into to death panels as a, a reflection of that. Do, do you see that changing? And if so, what's bringing about the change? And, and if not, is there something that will? I agree with you entirely that historically, uh, at least in the last 50, 60 years, um, we have not, at our peril, uh, wanted to talk about death and have kind of tried to hide death. Uh, it's, there's many reasons for it, um, 
But uh, what the reason that is changing again in the fact that we're talking about these issues is that society is aging. Um, the, as Latuga Wande said in his wonderful book, Being Mortal, um, there is a rectangularization uh, of the population so that within 30 years, there will be as many 80-year-olds as there are five-year-olds, which is a shocking thought. Um, historically, the elderly have been a few in number. So since there's many more aging people and they're confronting the realities of death, um, the topic is, is coming uh, to the forefront. And books like uh, Being Mortal uh, and other uh, excellent books and medical literature, um, such as the Institute of Medicine's uh, Dying in America, which was published just a few months ago, are, are allowing us to have uh, a platform to talk about these important issues. David Groove, National Medical Director for Compassion and Choices. David, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for uh, having me. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.